If you brought a copy of Scripture with you, you can find John chapter 17, John chapter 17. As we begin this uh, series, this Easter series titled, The Greatest, and this morning, The Greatest Prayer in History. How great was Jesus anyway? He was so great that he was still thinking about you in the last hours of his life. As he prayed the prayer we're going to look at this morning. How much did Jesus love his disciples? I love the way John describes his love for his disciples when he entered into that last supper in chapter 13 and verse 1 where it says, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. That's how much Jesus loved them and us. The last week of Jesus' life is where all the gospels go. Every one of them. 30 some percent of Matthew, Mark, and Luke are dedicated to the last week of Jesus' life. And over 40% in John's gospel. In fact, just 15 hours, give or take an hour, before he would hang on the cross and die for us, he was still teaching his beloved just life type of truths that you and I desperately need. And when we read these in John's gospel, we don't often associate them with the very hours before he died. But he, he, he taught us the, very, the secret to happiness itself when he was washing the disciples' feet and he said to them, if you know these things, happy are you if you do them. Have you ever read that? I like what someone said, the happiest people are the ones who discover the things they should do and the things they're doing are the same. He taught us the secret to relief from your troubled hearts. And some of you have those this morning when he said, don't let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe in me too. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go there, I'll come again to receive you to myself that where I am, there you may also be. Just the knowledge of that, that Christ is working and building and preparing a place for me, is enough for my troubled heart. He taught the exclusivity of the gospel. When people are thinking there's all kinds of ways to heaven, he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except what? Through me, through Jesus. And just a couple of verses later, when his, his disciple asked him about showing him the Father, he said, look, if, if he, he, he gave us the secret of seeing the Father. He said, if you've seen me, you've what? You've seen the Father. He taught the secret of understanding what it really means to love God, though many of you may claim to love God. He said, if you love me, you'll obey me. Just hours before he died. And then he even said, not only is obedience the, uh, the, the proof that you love me, it's the vehicle by which my father will disclose things to you that you've never seen before. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And the one who loves me will be loved by my father and I'll love him. And watch this. I will disclose. I will manifest. I will show myself to him. The secret to getting the deeper things of God is in obedience. 
He taught us in those last hours the, 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 the very doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Not a complete doctrine, but we learned so much about who the third person in the Godhead is just in those last 15 hours of his life around that table. As he talked about the, the helper coming into this world, he needed to leave, the helper would come. He's with you, he's gonna be in you. And his ministry is to convict the world of sin, of righteousness and judgment. And then he says this, of sin because they don't believe in me. And that's where some of you are right now. The one thing you're lacking is believing in Jesus. I spent some time, I've been spending some time with a man, having a great time studying the word of God, the gospel of Jesus with him. We're gonna meet again this week. This guy is the nicest guy in the world. He's got integrity, he's a good businessman, he's been a great father, and a number of other things. The one thing he lacks is belief in Jesus, and he knows it. And I'll tell you something. The greatest sin you will ever commit is the sin of unbelief. And Jesus said the Holy Spirit's primary ministry is to convict the world of unbelief. And we're taught that in the last hours of Jesus' life. He teaches us how to have a fruitful life. It's abiding in me, John 15, right? And that's where the secret to having a fruitful life is. He talks about understanding the, the coming persecution his, his disciples would meet and Christians throughout the world to this day endure. He said, if they hated me, they're going to what? They're going to hate you too. He even taught his disciples spiritual comprehension would come after the cross and not before in chapter 16 and verse 12 when he says, I've got so many things I want to tell you, but you can't bear them right now. As one theologian put it, the cross had to be endured before it could be explained. All of this, and then John chapter 17. John chapter 17 is, is almost an anomaly to the Gospels. I mean, it's not, in, it's not in Matthew, it's not in Mark, it's not in Luke, and some people read it and they think, oh, this must have taken place in the Garden of Gethsemane. No, it didn't. This passage of Scripture took place somewhere between the upper room and the Garden of Gethsemane. We're not told where. Somewhere along the way. But it is, as some have called it, the Holy of Holies in the New Testament because you have God communing with God. It's not like the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus even leaves his closest buddies and goes and prays to his Father. Now here he brings all 11, with minus Judas now, in to listen in, and he's going to let you and I listen in as well. In fact, I know many of you have your Bibles open, but I, I really want you to just think. You can close your eyes. You can think. I want you just imagining Jesus praying this prayer somewhere between the upper room and the agony of Gethsemane in this greatest of all prayers. And by the way, this prayer doesn't just, it's not just a prayer for his, he, he doesn't just pray for himself. He does. He prays for his disciples, and he prays for you and me. And he covers the scope of over 2,000 years because he's praying for us now. And it's, in, it's insinuated in this prayer as well. But just, just sort of imagine, if you will, here is Jesus saying, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. You have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they may know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Now, 
Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of this world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And they've kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, have come to know in truth that I came from you, Father. And that they have believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world. But for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. I'm coming to you, oh, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you've given me, that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you've given me. I guarded them. Not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you that these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word. The world has hated them because they're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, Father, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate, I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you've given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you've sent me. I made known to them your name. And I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. In Jesus' name, amen. Now this glorious prayer is not meant to be a model prayer. You don't have Jesus in this passage telling you and me, pray like this. Okay, there are no commands here. There's no confession of sin. You wouldn't expect that from Jesus, would you? He's not asking to be kept from personal temptation like he tells us to pray for, though he would be tempted by Satan. He does pray from, from earth to heaven for his disciples' protection. Today he prays from heaven to earth for ours. 
In it, he prays for himself. Did you notice that? He prays for his disciples, and he prays for us. And there's much to learn and love and apply in this great, greatest of all prayers ever prayed by the greatest of all men to ever live and die and live again. So in this greatest prayer in history, there are five reasons that Jesus prayed for himself, his disciples, and us. And the first one is this, that God would be glorified. And if you didn't notice, the word glory is mentioned in one form or another five times in just the first couple of verses, eight times throughout the prayer. Just the other day, I was meeting with a couple that, uh, that we've been, my wife and I have been meeting with for several months. They came, they came to Christ. They're incredibly precious. And, uh, and they're making some very epic decisions in their life now that they know the Lord. And I asked them, I said, are you Christians now? And they said, yes, we're Christians, this young couple. And I said to them, I said, so tell me, what's the most important thing a Christian can do? And he looked at me, he goes, uh, make God number one. I said, exactly. And the Bible uses terms like honoring and pleasing and glorifying God, right? Whatever we do, whether we eat, drink, or whatever we do, do all to the glory of God. He got it. It wasn't reading your Bible, coming to church, and doing a hundred other things that are good. The most important thing we can do is glorify God. And Jesus would lead the way in this. And he starts actually by praying for himself. I mean, you, and by the way, the most important person you can pray for in your endeavor to glorify God is yourself. Why would you pray for anyone else when you haven't been square, when you yourself aren't square with God? You start with yourself. Yet Jesus gave us a model prayer in Matthew chapter 6. And to use that as a, as a kind of template as we pray for ourselves that we might give glory to God. Jesus says in this prayer, the hour has come, in verse 1. He's referring to his suffering, impending death, his resurrection, his ascension to glory, all the Old Testament types and prophecies are about to be fulfilled. Satan is about to be dealt a death blow, amen? Amen. A new era is going to be ushered in, the mighty church of God, to spread the gospel of God about the Son of God who died for our sins and rose again. All of this is encompassed in, the, in his statement, the hour has come. And if you know John's gospel, he says several times, it's not my time, it's not my time. Now it's his time. The time of the ultimate glory of God in the death and resurrection of Christ. Glory, repeatedly. The word glory here, used over and over again, means it's, we get our word doxology from this word. But the word means to give weight to. It means to give honor to. It carries the idea of bringing, bringing out hidden values and treasures. And while Jesus' life certainly did that, his death, his death on the cross, brought out the hidden treasures of his beauty and his power and his exaltation as he defeated the, our enemy. Look how Paul put it to the Colossians when he said, by way of the cross, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them into open shame by triumphing over them in him. 
In other words, by becoming a spectacle himself, Jesus made a spectacle of Satan. Thank you very much. It was all to the glory of God. Our own Paul just read this a little bit earlier in Philippians chapter 2 where it says that Jesus suffered that death, the death of the cross in his great humiliation. It, then it says, therefore God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. Things in heaven, things on earth, things under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the what? To the glory of God the Father. It's all about his, in his glory, we glory. Now, how many of you are getting into March Madness right now? The glory of March. Come on, be honest. I mean, it's awesome. I love March Madness. Gathering around that TV, watching those wrestling matches. Oh, were you thinking basketball? On the other ESPN channel, there was a much better sport going on. Over there in Cleveland, home of LeBron James, the greatest wrestlers, collegiates in the country, descended to 19,000 people every round packed. Some of the greatest drama I've ever seen. You ought to get into the sport, really. And last night were the championships. And when one Penn State wrestler dramatically flipped another wrestler and pinned him, they interviewed him afterwards, and he was, Rah! He goes, I've been practicing that move since I'm in sixth grade. We're the best. I'm the best. We're the greatest. And he strutted off. I was not really impressed. His wrestling, yes. His boasting in himself, no. A couple of weights later, another wrestler walked off the mat. Having won his third consecutive national championship, to go along with his two world championships and his one gold medal. Talk about a man who could boast. Kyle Snyder walks off. They asked him how he did it, and this is what he said. So thankful for all the Buckeye fans who came. Uh, and then all glory, all the glory goes to Jesus Christ. <laughs> That's one of the things I want to say. Amen. All the glory goes to Jesus Christ. That guy, like no other wrestler that walked onto that mat the other night, had reason to boast, but his boast was in Jesus Christ. What is your boast in? God forbid that I should glory except in the cross of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the first thing he prayed for. And then that eternal life would be given. What did we just sing in the song a little bit ago? Two wonders I must confess. Uh, my worth and my unworthiness. Ah, I think that's my, that's my game changer today. I love that. Two wonders I confess. My worth and my unworthiness. Now, I don't know if you saw this, but over and over again in the prayer, Jesus is talking about you and me as gifts. Look what he says in verse 
Two, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. The gift offered to us was a gift, was first a gift given by the Father to the Son. And get a hold of this. We are first a gift to Jesus from the Father. Think about this. Seven times, seven times in this chapter, Jesus refers to that. Uh, look at verse, down to verse six. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. Verse nine, very end of verse nine. Those whom you have given me. End of verse 11, which you have given me. Which, uh, verse 12, which you have given me. And then finally, toward the end, in verse 24, Father, I desire that they whom you have given me. Eternal life became the gift Jesus gives to us having been given it to him by the Father. Here's how a more familiar passage puts it. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's a gift. The Father gave to the Son, the Son gives to us, and we give it back to God in faith. We respond to God. It all trickles down from the Father. Do you remember at the, at the, um, at the uh, well, when Jesus was talking to the woman at the well, the Samaritan, and he said, give me a drink. And she said, oh, look, I'm a Samaritan. You're a Jew. You want me to give you a drink? And he said, if you knew the gift of God and the one who asked you to give him a drink, you'd ask me and I'd have given you water by which you would never thirst again. Eternal life is a gift but we ourselves are spoken of as gifts here. This is craziness. What is eternal life? Verse 3, it's knowing God through Jesus Christ, who is both gift and giver of eternal life. The Father gave us the Son. The Son gave himself to us. And we respond in faith back to him. It's, it's, it's the ultimate re-gift. Have you received that gift? You know about it. Most of you have heard about it. You've heard it preached. You've read about it. But have you genuinely received the gift? A gift is not a gift unless it's received. And as many as received him, the gift, the ultimate gift, Jesus Christ. And praise be to God for that indescribable gift. Amen. As many as received him, to them, Father God gives the ex exousia, the authority, the right to become the children of God. You got to receive the gift that came from the Father to the Son and to us, and we respond back in faith. Just that simple, but not so simple, huh? Jesus is praying this, and then he prays that his followers would be set apart to do his work. Now he's praying for his 11, minus Judas. He's bugged out. And if you'll notice in verse 9, he says, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you've given to me. Which sounds kind of shocking on the surface. What do, we, what do you mean, Jesus? You're not praying for the world? No, he's not. He's praying for disciples. And by the way, isn't this what you do? Isn't this what I do? When I pray, after I prayed for myself... I pray for those closest to me, right? I pray for my spouse. I pray for my children. I pray for my grandchildren. I pray for those I'm working with. Jesus is just, he's doing that here. 
I had a friend, and by the way, notice he says, and I'm praying that you will keep them from the evil one, which is significant. he's, He's asking for divine protection over his disciples. That's what he's asking for. I had a friend just the other day say to me, you know, I'd love to see one of my kids go into missions, but man, I'd struggle if God sent them to Iraq. And my wife overheard this. She said, why would you struggle if it's the will of God? You have the prayer of Jesus. There'll be enough protection for as long as it's needed, right? And he says, here's how we're going to be protected. We're going to be set apart by the word of God. Verse 17, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is what? It's truth, and it sanctifies. And that's the key word here, because Jesus is praying that his followers, granted the disciples, but, but by implication, you and I as well, would be set apart to do his work. Now, listen carefully to this. Set apart, the word sanctify means to set apart. That's what it means. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. That's the vehicle by which God sanctifies us. But what does it mean to be sanctified? And how do we get sanctified? By the way, I'm not set apart by John Kelvin or John Wesley or, or John, you know, or John MacArthur or John Piper. Throw five other Johns in there if you want. You're not sanctified by Tim Keller or J.D. Greer or Matt Chandler or Jen Wilkins or Charles Spurgeon or C.S. Lewis and certainly not by me. You might be instructed. You might even be inspired. But there's only one author and one book that can sanctify you. That's the Holy Spirit, and his book is the Bible. And here's what Paul said to the Ephesian elders as he left them. He says, now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to sanctify you and give you an inheritance amongst the saints. This is the only book in the entire world, and the Holy Spirit is the only author who can set you apart for God and his purposes. And by the way, to be set apart doesn't just mean to stop doing something. Like a lot of people take it and end it. Well, I'm sanctified. I don't drink anymore. What does that mean? Someone's, I mean, what, what good does it do if, if I stop beating my wife if I don't start loving my wife? What good does it do? You stop gambling. Great. Are you giving? When God sanctifies something or someone, he does it for a purpose. The chairs you're sitting in have been sanctified. Did you know that? Really? I don't mean we put holy water or we bless it. I just mean they're set apart for you to sit and enjoy and learn and worship. The cars outside in the parking lots all around us have been sanctified. Your car has been sanctified. You didn't buy that car to stare at it and say, what a nice looking car. You bought it so that it could get you from one place to another. You're going to get out there in a few moments expecting it to take you home, right? It's been set apart to that end. But God, we, we, sancti- God, we sanctify all kinds of things. But God, by his word, wants to sanctify you and me to glorify him and spread his name and his fame in this world. The disciples whom Jesus was primarily praying for at this moment were about ready to face an onslaught of hatred and persecution and pain and all but one of them eventual 
martyrdom. So he prays for protection until they've, like him, have run their course, accomplished their task. And why would you want to stay here any longer? We're here as long as God wants us to be here, and then he takes us out. So the protection here is to be set apart to do the work of God. That's Jesus' prayer for his disciples and certainly for you and me. Then he prays that his followers would be one. If you ever, verse 20 says, I, I, Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, that would be his disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. If you ever wondered if Jesus Christ ever prayed for you specifically, don't wonder anymore. He's doing it here. This is what I meant by, the, by not just the longest prayer uh, in Scripture, but it's the longest prayer in scope. This verse 20 takes us to the present hour. Jesus prayed for us. He's praying for us. And why is he praying? Those who believe in me, that they would be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. One day, everybody who knows Jesus will be one in heaven. Can I get an amen? amen. So why should we strive for anything like that down here? Amen? I mean, there's going to come a day where the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then those who are alive and remain will be caught up together, together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and will always be with the Lord. Hallelujah! Except that I didn't read the verse just before that, which says this. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so... Through Jesus, God will bring with him those who are fallen asleep. The Lord himself shall descend from heaven, etc. Did you catch that? He didn't say, and if we believe in an early rapture, or a mid-trib rapture, or a post-rapture, or whatever rapture, or no rapture. If you believe in no rapture, you're really dumb. But that's not the point. The point is, if you believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again, you are one with the family of God. Despite all the peripheries, all the differences, all the interwoven differences and peripheral matters, we are still one. And if you didn't catch it, the word love is used repeatedly in this passage. But look at it again if you would. Verse 21, that they may be one just as you, Father, are in me, I in you. They may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them. That they may be as we are, uh, I in them, you and me. They become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me. And loved them even as you loved me. Our oneness is predicated on our loveness. Our oneness is predicated on our loveness. I know that's not a word. I just made it up. But we need to know what it means to love one another, experience the love of one another. It is that very thing that God pulled. He uses love to pull us together. And by this, people believe when they see our love, do they not? 
There's an emphasis on love here. And there's no way to get around it. Jesus wants us to be united in love. Not some ishy-gishy, come as you are, come all, regardless of what you believe. Remember, it's in the same context that he said, I'm the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Okay? So it's got to be through Jesus. It's in this very prayer where he says, set them apart by your truth. Your word is truth. Right? But if the word be preached and the gospel believe, then you, my friend, are my brother, you're my sister, you're my family, and Jesus Christ forever. Do you believe that? So why don't we start practicing now what we will experience later. It's the prayer of Jesus. And finally, that the world would take notice. That's, that's the reason for this love and this oneness, that the world would take notice. He said it back in 13. By this will all men know you're my, you're my followers, you're my mafetes, you're my disciples, if you have love for one another. That's how they're going to know. And he says in verse 21, I'm doing this so that the world may believe. And then in verse 23, that the world may know. First century outsiders were overheard saying, look how they love one another. And it was by this that the world, according to Acts 17, was flipped upside down by the gospel of Jesus Christ and the unity and love of the saints. Just the other day, my wife and I began meeting with a very sweet young couple in their early 20s. They're not Christians and they know it. But they've been coming here for about a month. And I said to them, why did you keep coming? And they said, because there's so much love here. People are so nice. And then I cry every time you preach. I said, that's what I try to do. That's not true. That is what she said. (laughs) But they were drawn by the love of the brethren. And in my heart, I prayed, Lord, may the love of your people draw them to the love of your son. And if God has been drawing you, why don't you just believe? The greatest sin you could ever commit is not, it's not pornography, it's not adultery, it's not thievery, it's not 50 other things you could mention, all being wrong. The greatest sin you'll ever commit is the sin of unbelief. And some of you have been drawn by God, by the word of God, the son of God, and believe it or not, by the people of God. So why don't you just believe in God? You believe in God, Jesus said, believe also in me, and you'll have eternal life. God, thank you for our time in your word. Thank you for this wonderful prayer, this holy of holies in the New Testament of Jesus praying for himself, praying for his disciples, and wonder of wonders, Lord, praying for us. And now, Lord, I pray for those who are in this room.
who have never believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, but today, that, if that's you, my friend, young or old, you're thinking, ah, it's time for me to believe. It's time for me to admit my waywardness and my sin. It's time for me to come to the cross and believe Jesus died and rose again. That's me. I want to believe. Is that you, my friend? Would you believe in Jesus right now? And God, may the rest of us endeavor to glorify you, be one in love, and turn this world upside down for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.